0: We continue now our series in Luke's Gospel and have come to the 8th chapter. Luke's Gospel, the 8th chapter. Luke is often giving... Transitional passages, and those first verses of chapter 8, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others— provided for them out of their means is one of those transitional passages. We're not going to focus there this morning, but two of these women will come up again later in the narrative. But we come now to chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Will you pray with me, and then we will read together this portion of God's Word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that now as we bow in your sacred presence that we will remember that you are and have promised to be the friend of sinners. Sinners chosen in your everlasting love from before the foundations of the world, a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation that you are drawing out of the world, out of darkness and into light as the word of God is proclaimed and as Christians bear witness. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that this morning would be no exception. Indeed, we pray that never do we hold a service of worship, offering to you your due, that we do not see someone who is lost come to know Christ, and we pray that always your people will be built up in the most holy faith. And so we humble ourselves under the authority of your word and pray that you will open its meaning and help us to understand it, and we pray that we will see Christ and that having heard the word that you would continue that great work of sanctification in the hearts of your already justified people and that we may know and love and serve the living god and be more conformed to the image of your son having worshiped your name today and heard this word today than we your people were when we first came in and how can we fail but to preach and to pray and to labor for the one who loved us and gave himself for us, whom we worship and through whom we worship, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Taking your copy of God's word, let's stand together. Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. This is the word of God. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others... They are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this The seed is the Word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I think you can see that, indeed, this is a very, very serious theme. The question is, how do you and I respond to God's word? Do we respond in faith and perseverance Or is our response temporary, careless, perhaps even reckless? Jesus stresses in this parable a variety of responses to the Word of God. He speaks of obstacles to hearing the Word rightly. There is here an implicit warning. Jesus didn't hide the hard bits in his preaching. So Jesus addresses the crowds with the parable The parable of the seed among the various soils. It may be that a preacher today gathering crowds like that would tickle their ears, say something that would be pleasing to them. Jesus, when he is there with the crowds, brings a very hard message indeed. Because it's all about ultimately, ultimately, two kinds of responses to the word of God. That which is truly believing and that which is not. So, first of all, let's review the parable as found in verses 4 through 8. We have the seed, the seed that is by the road in verse 5. Now, from October to December, the seed was planted in ancient Israel, and there would be a bag of grain that the sower would have next to him, and he would go along the rows sowing the the seed. Or in some instances, there would be an ox, and there would be a bag that would be attached to the ox, and as the ox moved along, the seed would drop out on the ground. Some, however, would land on the road. It would be walked upon. That seed would be eaten by birds. And only Luke notes that the seed is trampled, the seed by the road. Then there is seed by the rock, or on the rock. In certain places in Palestine, there is a a layer of limestone. So beneath the topsoil, even though the topsoil looks as if it might be fertile... The topsoil looks as if it might bring a great crop. Underneath, there was limestone. So at first, the seed, when it is put into this topsoil, sprouts. It looks good. It looks as if it is going to produce, but the plant dies because of lack of moisture. The root is not drawn down into nourishing soil, but it stops there with the limestone. And then there is seed, in verse 7, that is among the thorns, the acantha plant, The thorn plant that could be actually six feet tall that would draw up all the needed moisture that the other plants would need for their growth all around them and could actually just take over. The plants couldn't live because of the thorns among them. So something outside the seed in this case determines the results of the planting. And then there is seed on good soil, as we read in verse 8. It grows and bears much seed. The seed that is produced by this yields a hundredfold. So there is seed by the road that is walked on, eaten by birds. Seed on the rock that dies for lack of moisture. Seed among the thorns that is choked out. And seed on good soil that bears much fruit. Jesus then tells this as a straightforward parable with no explanation to the crowds, but he does say, if you have ears to hear, hear it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we see next the purpose of parables. The disciples asked for an explanation in verse 9, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, He said, the disciples want to know, what does this mean? And the answer is found in verse 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The word divides those to whom it comes into two groups. Believers understand the parable in connection to life. The rest do not. The idea that we sometimes have of parables, that the parables of Jesus were given to make the presentation of the gospel simple to understand for unbelievers, is not true. That is not why parables were given. And everywhere we find that in the New Testament when parables are referenced, and especially this parable. The mysteries of the kingdom are given to believers. You understand the spiritual meaning of this parable because the Holy Spirit indwells you and enables you to see it as the word of God is explained. But to those who do not know Jesus, the parables remain an existential enigma. Parables reveal, but parables also veil. As Sibbs, the Puritan put it, carnal men are earthly in heavenly matters, Those that are spiritually minded are heavenly disposed in earthly matters. So when the crowds heard, there would have been those who believed, those who did not believe, or those who eventually would believe, and those who would continue not believing. The parables reveal and the parables veil. There were carnal men that were earthly in Their thoughts of heavenly matters, they would hear the parable, they would not make any connection to the future, to the judgment seat, to what it means to respond to Christ. There are others who are spiritually minded and they are heavenly disposed as they hear these earthly things, they immediately think of heavenly things and they want to probe more deeply into who Jesus is and what he does for sinners. Now remember the backdrop of this is Isaiah 6 that was read by Adam to us this morning. And Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 is cited by Jesus in verse 10 of this chapter. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so so that, and this is Isaiah, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Of course, the backdrop is that in Isaiah 6, Judah had had the word of God. They had been privileged to have the oracles of God. They had had the prophets. They had had the preaching of the word. Judah had had the word, but they rejected the word. And Judah is being judged because of hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Let's take our Bibles and look at a few passages together. Let's look, for example, at the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. Verses 39 through 41. Passages with which you're familiar, very little comment on my part, but chapter 9 of John's Gospel, 39 to 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, And those who see may become blind. Another reference to Isaiah 6. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Or turning together to the first chapter of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, as the Apostle Paul addresses the Gentile world and what that world is like, he says in Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Koteco, push it down. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So he says, they're without excuse. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is not that men do not know God, but men know God and don't like him. You cannot help but know that the God who is, is, but everyone outside of Christ, suppresses the truth, suppresses what we know to be true. And so, he says in verse 23, because of this heart attitude, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In verse 25, they exchanged, again the word, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, Amen. And then in verse 26, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They gave up those things that were clearly taught, clearly seen, and clearly known, and in the suppression of their truth, they are heaping judgment on themselves. But I think what is really awe-inspiring in this passage, awe-filled, is that in verse 24, it says, God gave them over. In verse 26, God gave them over, and in verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And the list follows. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree, they know it, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so as I remember A.T. Robertson somewhere saying, it's like clods dropping on a coffin, as the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 describes the heart of the truth suppressor in the Gentile world, the hardness of heart. Sin is the punishment of sin. Or we could turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, and there we are reminded of the hardness of heart on the part of Pharaoh And in verses 17 and 18 in particular, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. As Pharaoh hardened his heart more and more, the result was the judicial judgment of God in furthering the hardness of his heart. Or at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, as the Jews have come to hear what Paul has to say about Jesus and they reject it, the apostle Paul in Acts twenty-eight twenty-five, says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Now this is again the sixth chapter of Isaiah that was read this morning. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their hearts they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Hardness of heart. Now that's the backdrop for Luke chapter 8 and the parable that we have read together that Jesus is explaining this morning. Parables prevent sinners from comprehending. It's actually a hina clause. In order that, seeing they might not see. For the purpose that, seeing they might not see. And hearing they might not hear. So the awesome consideration is simply this. One purpose of the preaching of the Word, in this case, in parables, but one purpose of the preaching of the Word is to bring judgment and more hardening in the hearts of those who already have hardened their hearts against God, Christ, and His gospel. The stress in Isaiah is against those who resist the message, though Isaiah makes clear that there is always the promise of salvation of a remnant. The design, however, is judicial hardening, leading ultimately to complete hardening, in some cases, of those who reject his word. So the backdrop here is the lack of believing response to the ministry of Jesus that we've already seen in Luke. In chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic, the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' commendation of the woman who washed her feet that we saw last week, washed his feet with her tears and the Pharisees would not believe. Now, if I may cite a commentator, Bach, he makes this statement, hardness has its costs. Did you hear that? Hardness has its costs, and that is precisely the point of the parable, precisely the point of the use of parables in Jesus' ministry, that those who are spiritually minded because their hearts are opened by the Spirit of God would receive and believe, but those who are hardening their hearts might continue in that hardness under the judgment of God, because hardness is Hardness of heart is a serious matter. Hardness has its costs. Do you know Proverbs 29 1? He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall be suddenly destroyed, and that without remedy. And the hardened sinner must bear the blame of his own hardness of heart, even though in God's sovereignty, He judges the hardness of heart. Now, that's the use of parables. It's an awesome consideration. We have the absolute sovereignty of God side by side with the full and complete responsibility of man. man. But now let's look at the parable. The third thing the parable of the seed among the soils explained. The disciples want an explanation. And we are told in verse 11 that the seed is the Word. Now, the parable is this the seed is the Word of God. Responses that are permanent and positive are stressed at the end of the parable, but there are other possible responses to the Word of God. The preacher and we who share the Word do not make the seed, the seed is given to us to scatter, and that seed is the Word of God. So, as he interprets and explains the parable, what about the seed by the road? Well, look at verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So, this seed by the road is walked on, trampled, eaten by birds, and very plainly it says the devil steals it away so that they will not be saved because there is only one way to be saved, and that is through Christ who is revealed through the word. Satan has as his goal hindering the Word of God from taking root in the heart. And verse 12 makes it plain, they have heard with the physical ears the Word. The ones along the path are those who have heard. They have heard the preacher. They have heard the prophet. In this case, they heard God incarnate, the Lord Jesus himself They heard the word, but they rejected it. Is your heart a crowded street, crowded by pride and vanity and evil? The devil rules your heart and the birds carry it away? May God plow your heart. May he change the soil of your heart. No hope without that. That's the seed by the road. But then there's the seed by the rock. That's the seed that's not nourished. Verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So the initial response in this case, to this particular kind of heart, this particular kind of soil, is that the word of God is proclaimed and it is received. Indeed, it is received with joy. And how hopeful we are when sometimes we see such people. They're so filled with joy. They say they've been saved. They've been redeemed by Christ. And then sometimes we are so sadly disappointed because after a while that person is not here anymore, doesn't delight in divine things anymore, doesn't care about Christ and his word anymore, has no concern for the worship of God, doesn't have interest in the fellowship of the people of God There's no nourishment there to keep it alive. In reality, it was despite the emotion, despite the joy, never hang your eternal salvation on that, but only grounded in the person and work of Jesus. In reality, it was just a superficial response. They weep and they're joyful and they say they've been converted and you receive them into church membership, but after a while, they are absent. And you notice at the end of verse 3 that it says, in time of testing, fall away. That word fall away means to apostatize. It's the same word that is used by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. It's the same word that we find in Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So unbelief and falling away, unbelief and apostasy are coordinate. An evil, unbelieving heart may indeed in time show that a professing Christian does not possess what he professes. He was never saved to begin with. And it all stems, according to Hebrews 3, from a hardening of the heart. And in time of testing, look at verse 13 again. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So in time of testing, these people fall away. Christ and his gospel are not worth it for these sorts of people with these sorts of hearts. The testing becomes difficult. They say, oh, we didn't bargain on this. We thought when we became a Christian, things would get better. Uh, You know, we'd have a better business. We'd have more money. We would have a a happy life. Uh, When when we became a Christian, that things would just go well. We certainly didn't expect people not to like us anymore and to oppose us. And so, in time of testing, they apostatize. Christ and his gospel are just not worth it. Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Peter speaks of the dog returning to his vomit and the pig to his sty. I heard a radio preacher say, Sometimes the prodigal goes to the pigsty before returning home, and sometimes the pig goes to the father's house. So he imagined the pig with a little pink ribbon around his neck and his teeth had been brushed by Pepsodent, but he still was a pig and eventually he would want to go back to the sty well that's peter's point in second peter the dog returns to his vomit the pig to his sty he's the same no he's not the same he is worse than he was before temptations and trials wither away their profession of faith and now they hate the word that they once professed to love They don't want anything to do with Christ or his word or any real, true church of Jesus Christ, though they might find some excuse for a church and want to be a part of it. And then, there's seed among the thorns, verse 14. Let's read it again. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So this is seed among the thorns, choked by worry, riches, and pleasures, wrapped up in this world and its affairs. Luke will give us an example of this in Luke chapter 12, when he speaks in a parable again of a man that was rich, and God in his providence increased his riches. What am I going to do with all of this grain? Well, I'm going to build bigger barns to store my grain. Rather than being God's philanthropist and giving out what God gave to him and sharing it with those in need and being appreciative and grateful, he wanted to hoard it all to himself. All he wanted was to amass riches. And the parable says, Jesus said, thou fool, this night thy soul will be required of you. You're going to die tonight. You can't take your grain. You can't take your barns. You can't take your lands. You can't take your riches. Thou fool. Just to be concerned with riches. thy soul will be required of you. Well, that's the purpose of the parable. The apostle Paul warned of the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. I'll let you read it on your own. But this is the purpose who says, I have, no, I have no use for preparing for the Lord's day. I don't want to be in worship. I'd rather be out doing something that just pleases me. I'm not concerned with offering God as due. I forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. It doesn't bother me. I would rather be out doing things that just bring me pleasure. What? Spend my time reading the Bible and confessing my sins? What joy is in that? And there's no understanding of the joys of communion with Christ because that person is not in communion with Christ and never has been. Oh, for a while they thought they were in communion with Christ. They had a mistaken understanding of what it all meant. It was never in the, in the heart. Some by worry, some by riches, others by pleasure. It, the word just gets choked out. And the heart's affections, this is the issue the heart's affections, nothing wrong with riches, nothing wrong with, with certain sorts of pleasures. Though certain sorts are certainly wrong. The issue is the heart being given over to it, my affections being given over to these things rather than my affections being given to Christ. And I've seen this. I could tell you of a couple that I knew many, many years ago, They became very involved in a godly and biblical church. They were there Sunday after Sunday. And then their business began to prosper. And then the Lord's Day became a business day. Now, this was not a police officer on call or a medical doctor. We're talking about just business. And worship was no longer their priority. And over time, you didn't see them anymore. And they were completely lost in the world. Beware, beware, what are our hearts' priorities? Upon what have we fastened our hearts? The seed cannot mature in soil like that. It really corresponds to the meaning of what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount when we saw those who built their houses on the sand so that when the winds and storms came, not being built on the solid rock who is Christ, the house of their life was destroyed. But then we have seed and good soil, verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with Patience. This is the noble and good heart. Now, it takes all of the Bible to interpret a passage of Scripture. If the gospel takes root in good soil, it's not because the soil was natively good, because everyone, because of original sin, is a sinner. All of us are children of wrath, even as the rest. We are estranged from God. We are his enemies by nature. There is no good and noble heart in regard to this receiving of the gospel until the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart to receive the gospel. Now that's the soil that is spoken of here. It takes all of the Word of God to understand. It is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit changing the heart that enables it to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says for for he who, see, for who sees anything different in you. If somebody looks at you and sees there's something different about you and the unbeliever, why is it there? What do you have that you did not receive, that is by grace? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so the Spirit of God does this. The sinner cries out really and truly in faith, God have mercy upon me, the sinner. And this Holy Spirit produced soil, heart, according to verse 15, holds fast the word that has been heard. Now, this is the same word that we saw in Romans chapter 1, katecho, of those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Who hold it down, who suppress it. The very same word is used here of the believer that loves it and holds it fast because it is dear to him. He holds it fast. And shouldn't the church in its worship and teaching and service labor to be used of the Lord to produce Christians with depth and substance and content, Christians who persevere? And if we adopt fads and fashions, rather than calling the world to bow the knee before the sovereign God, we will continue to produce anemic Christians, and even worse, people who totally misunderstand the nature of Christianity, of trust in Christ, and of discipleship. The Word is truly rooted in the heart that is regenerated, and perseverance is founded in the certain hope of the future. By faith, the obstacles to the Christian life, whatever they may be, are overcome because Christians are stars shining in the, in the universe, not meteors that fizzle out. But some people who profess in faith in Christ are like those who on the 4th of July take a sparkler. You know what I mean? A sparkler? Yeah? You light it? And my, it's pretty and everyone rejoices in it but it fizzles out after a few moments. Do you realize that there is only one Christian grace that the evil one cannot mimic, cannot imitate? Do you have joy? The evil one can imitate that in someone's heart. Do you have grief? The evil one can imitate that in someone's heart. Do you have true faith? Now, true faith is different from spurious faith, but that's the point. The evil one can imitate faith. Are you repentant? The evil one can imitate repentance. There is only one grace, only one spiritual grace in the heart of a true believer that the evil one cannot imitate, and that is perseverance. So, the parable. Nothing esoteric here, nothing hard to understand. But if you're an unbeliever, you don't get it. You don't understand it. You understand it on one level. You could tell us what the parable is about. But the point of the parable for the believer is that I know the Christ who speaks the parable. I love him and I love his word and it's taken root in my heart. And that you'll never get until God sovereignly saves you by his grace. So, how is this parable to be taken to heart? How is it to be applied? We've seen some things, but I want to say a couple of things. You know, one view of this parable is that the parable is eschatological, it is speaking of an ultimate triumph of God's word and kingdom. And I think that's absolutely true, but it's not the main point. The parable is here because it calls to decision. Maybe a better word, it calls to division. It confronts us sinners with salvation either in Christ by believing His Word or lostness because we do not believe His Word. It's one or the other. And surely the point must be, how do I respond to God's Word? What is my relation to Christ and His kingdom? The point is head-on confrontation. Jesus, again, does not leave out the hard bits in his preaching. And so the point of the parable is, there really are two classes of hearers. The difference between them is not the objective hearing of the word of God. They all have ears and they've heard. The difference is in the subjective embracing of God's word. For some, the devil steals the word "preach." For others, there is superficial response, maybe with great emotion and joy even. But when the seriousness of Christian living hits them, they don't last. Others are wrapped up in the affairs of this life, and like thorns choking the good seed, the word is choked out of their lives. These people have never really been saved. And then there's the reception of God's Word really and truly by faith produced by the Holy Spirit that will last. The preaching of God's Word says Paul the Apostle. This is in 2 Corinthians 2.16. The preaching of God's Word is to one a fragrance of death unto death and of life unto life. One of the One of the things that is so wonderfully glorious about preaching the gospel is that you know it is a savor of life unto life, that God is going to save people through the preaching of the word and continue to work in their lives his saving work. But one of the things that actually is so incredibly heavy about preaching the word and the ministry of the gospel that actually can bow your humanity way down deep into the dust is the knowledge that the preaching of the gospel is a savor of death unto death. Some people say, ah, I don't want to hear that. And they go into eternal perdition. That's what's happening here with this Parable. Two classes of hearers, to one the mysteries of the kingdom are rejected, to the other the mysteries deepen into wonder as we receive them by faith. But it's a call to decision, a call to division. Yes, to decide favorably only happens by free grace, but a call to decision and separation of the two classes of hearers must result from the preaching of the word of God and the preaching of this parable, the parable of the soils. So how do you respond to the Word of God? That's the question. Do you abandon the faith because it's hard? Does your pursuit of wealth and pleasure consume you? Or do you truly believe in Christ, resulting in persevering faith? Which is it? There's no in between, no middle ground. When it comes to Christ, there's no sitting on the fence. So I close with these two things. First, a warning and then a promise. The warning is simply this. Remember the backdrop of Isaiah 6. Isaiah, I'm going to send you to our rebellious people, and when you preach, nobody is going to listen to you, almost nobody. Hearing, they will not hear. Seeing, they will not see, and that's the purpose of your ministry, Isaiah. And there Isaiah is to preach to a people whose hearts are hard. And as he preaches, their hearts get harder. Luke 8.10 references that background. So the warning, we have been seeing in Luke already the Lord Jesus rejected. And that rejection becomes more and more pronounced as we move along. The heart that is hard rejects God's word, becomes harder and harder And that is the warning. The heart that rejects God's word unless God and sovereign grace intervene. The heart that rejects God's word gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Young people, you better hear this. You know, when... When a parent says to his child, do you hear me? The test is in the response. So the word goes forth. Do you hear Christ? The test is in your response. And then a promise. A promise that comes from another portion of Scripture, but is not at all tangential. Someone may say, I can't change the soil of my heart. That's true. But God can. Some will respond truly and in faith. You are responsible to change your heart, even though incapable. Because everyone who has departed from the living God is responsible to return to him, even though incapable. The knowledge of the kingdom of God, according to verse 10, must be given, it's grace. So take heart. Do you believe in Christ? Do you receive his word? Has God made the soil of your heart good soil so that it takes root and is nourished and it grows and it matures and it produces a hundredfold? Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So our prayer is this, O Lord, send the seed of your word to this congregation. Make our hearts to be good, Holy Spirit-produced soil. And in this church and throughout the church and the states and throughout the world, bring in a full, glorious, wonderful, eternal harvest because God says his word will not return unto him void, but will accomplish the purpose unto which he sends it. And God's people said, Amen.